And also, a lot of you might understand how awesome this is, but it's my first day wearing my little booties today. So oh, I'm going to pick my foot up here. I know this is horrible audio <laughs> podcasting here, but I'm picking my foot up and showing you my sandals because mm-hmm. it's still sandal weather here. It's a little bit frosty. Yep, the nice. Okay. Oh, wow. This, so Christine and Bridget are both wearing their booties today. Mm-hmm. And both stuck them up for us to see. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us once again. My name is Naftali Serrano, and this is the Integrated Care Podcast, the official podcast of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. It's so great to have you uh, here with us today. We've got a a really great podcast here with some new uh, voices joining us on the podcast. They'll introduce themselves here in a moment. But we're just excited to have you here, particularly because there's a lot of excitement building here at CFHA as we approach our annual conference coming up in October. So by the time many of you are listening to this podcast, it'll either be right before the the conference in Denver, Colorado, or right after. So if you are uh, upset and distraught that you were not able to make it this year at our conference. Just know that you're there with us in spirit and know that you can always check out when our next conference is um, on integratedcareconference.com. So uh, without further ado, let's get to know our our podcasters here. So let's start with our uh, newest podcaster, actually. We have a new member of our team, an old friend of mine, partner in crime, so I'm really happy to have her aboard. Christine, why don't you uh, just say hello to the people and, and tell people a little bit about yourself. Awesome. Thanks. I'm Christine Forrest. I'm a professor at Arizona State University for the Doctor of Behavioral Health Program. I am lucky enough, actually, to live in Colorado, so I'm super excited to just pop up an hour to see everybody at the conference next month. That's right. That's tremendous. And Christine, you've got a lot of experience in a lot of different areas. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so d- tell, me, tell, tell the folks out there a little bit about your background related to integrated care and what, why it is that you ended up at ASU to begin with. Just a kind of a 60-second thumbnail. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, my PhD is in medical family therapy. I remember doing my uh, master's in marriage and family therapy and thinking, wait, 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 we're missing this whole piece of the puzzle. Um, Found medical family therapy, loved it, loved the process of building integrated care programs. And that's when I started in integrated care technical assistance at the Center of Excellence in North Carolina, which is where um, eventually Neff came along. And so that's where we met. And after that, we moved to Colorado because I'm also part of a medical marriage. So my husband is a trauma surgeon. And so we have to balance the life of living a professional career, but also the crazy world of medical training. So uh, we came to Colorado for his fellowship. And at that point, I needed some better work-life balance because we have three little kids under six. And so it's the constant struggle of, you know, having my own career, supporting my trauma surgeon husband and our family. Um, but then wanting to do what I love to do. And so I love the diversity of the Doctor of Behavioral Health program and the kind of students we have and the fact that they're hustling all day and then pop online at night for our lectures after their kids are in bed and they're still smiling. And um, not only that, they're taking what we learn in class that night and they're going to work the next day and trying it. So it's really cool to see that really fast turnaround. Yeah, that's awesome. And and honestly, embedded in all that awesomeness is a super great story that I'm just going to tease today because we don't have time to talk about it. <laughs> okay. It's, it's my number one, the number one thing I love about uh, Christine is her, her engagement story. So we'll introduce our podcasters <laughs> to that. So we'll tease that at the conference. All right. Like that. All right. Sounds good. So Perfect. 
So our our next podcaster here is uh, the stellar Bridget Beachy. Bridget, uh, say hello to folks out there and uh, remind them where you're calling in from. Yeah, I'm calling in from actually Boston, doing some consulting work at a federally qualified health center out here uh, to help get their integrated care going. So it's super exciting. Uh, and like I said, finally joining you guys on, on the East Coast with the Eastern Standard Time. Uh, normally it's 7 a.m. for me, but it is 10 a.m. here. Uh, so I'm sure your body, uh, I'm sure like your body doesn't really know the difference. Is everything, essentially. So football, hoodies, the smell. But yeah, the crispness, the, the foliage, everything. I uh, really love fall. Yeah, I, and actually, you answered the question that I forgot to ask. Uh, Grace Wilson, who's usually on with us today, is not able to be on, um, unfortunately, because oh. her little kid has pink eye. And so, yeah, so we were, we were supposed to be answering the question of uh, what our favorite season is. So Bridget, probably because she's in the Northeast and is already experiencing fall on some level, mm-hmm. uh, jumped the gun and, and answered the question. Okay, so Bridget, now we know that fall is your favorite season. I just was so excited. I couldn't keep it in. <laughs> Literally, and you've got a plaid shirt on. I mean, the, the folks on the on the podcast can't do it, but you've got you're like looking fallish. Whereas, you know, me in North Carolina, I've got my short sleeve, you know, Guayabera looking shirt here. So, uh, it is not it is not feeling like fall here. So, yeah. So uh, let's double back, Christine. What's your favorite season? Fall, one hundred percent. And actually, I was thrilled that this morning I woke up, and it's normally sunny in Colorado, and it was like crisp and cloudy and cozy and even a little rainy and I just can't get enough and also a lot of you might understand how awesome this is but it's my first day wearing my little booties today so the sandals have been officially retired we're back to fall boots yeah well okay so you guys are making me (laughs) jealous because literally I'm gonna pick my foot up here I know this is horrible audio (laughs) podcasting here but I'm picking my foot up and showing you my sandals because mm-hmm. it's still sandal weather here. It's a little bit frosty. Yep, nice. Okay. Oh, wow. This, so Christine and Bridget are both wearing their booties today. Mm-hmm. And both stuck them up for us to see. And they're all both brown, fashionable booties. So that must be the, the basic thing to do this season. All right. So, uh, you know. Andrew's like, I'm gone. Andrew's yeah, Andrew's like, yeah, our special guest. Can you sign me up for on here? <laughs> Well, you know that you're going to have to show your footwear here in a moment, so just be prepared for for being flexible. I don't really have much of a favorite. Summer is my favorite season, which is why I moved here to North Carolina, but even this is a little bit too much summer for me, so I'm looking forward to a little cooler weather coming up here soon. It's going to be 91 degrees here today, and it's September 26th at the time of our uh, recording. So, you know, you take the good with the bad. Without further ado, uh, let's introduce our special guest. Um, we'll have a chance to talk to him in more in depth in a moment. But he's actually the president of CFHA. So he leads our board, um, provides vision for our organization, has done such great work. So I'm really happy to have uh, my good friend Andy Valeras here. Andy, why don't you give a, a brief intro into who you are and uh, what you do up there in New Hampshire? Sure. So um Andy Valeris. I'm a family doc, and I work currently in Concord, New Hampshire, part of the New Hampshire Dartmouth Family Medicine Residency, and recently took over the role of Associate Program Director for the Leadership Preventive Medicine Residency at, at Dartmouth. It's the place where I trained in, in both residencies, and I've stuck around there mostly just in belief of the, the vision that they have and what they're trying to do to create change agents within 
healthcare. And a lot of that is based on teaching complexity. So I'm excited to talk about that about that today. But I've been involved in integrated behavioral health since starting residency. It's the only water I know in a lot of ways. So um, I'm really excited to keep pushing that needle throughout the country through CFHA and just honored to be a part of that. Absolutely. Great. And, uh, you know, I mean, you're an unofficial member of our podcast team today. So what's your favorite season? Fall without a doubt. And mostly that idea of transition. And in New England, that is by far the easiest time to see the, the transition of seasons when the fire starts happening to all the trees. And it's just beautiful to look at but really hits home that, that things are changing and that's a good thing. There you go. All right. Let's transition to our news and notes. And as we talk to you about uh, Grace Wilson, who's usually with us, um, is not able to be with us. She's going to, uh, she, she did a pre-recorded uh, news and notes with, uh, for us uh, that we're going to switch to here in a moment. But I'll also let you know that uh, Jeffrey Ring and Deepu are not able to be with us today as well, but they miss you guys out there in podcast land and will join us next month at our conference, our special conference recording of the podcast. We will be on site in Denver all together in the same space, other than Bridget, who lamely is going Mm -hmm. to a wedding. Not sure why she chose a wedding over the CFHA conference. Um, I didn't want to. It's my husband's (laughs) fault. It's his you, family, you, not my family. You, you do know that this is a public <laughs> podcast. I mean, you don't want to get into in-law problems, but I'm guessing they already know you don't. Yeah, that's fine. All right, let's uh, get to news and notes with Grace. everyone. I'm sorry I couldn't make it to the recording today, but I did want to give an update for our news and notes about a lawsuit that's happening here in my home state in Oklahoma. So Oklahoma is one of the first states to go to trial against the manufacturers of opioid medications to try to hold them accountable for um, their role in the opioid crisis. On August 26th, Johnson & Johnson was ordered to pay the state of Oklahoma $572 million due to damages from their role in the opioid crisis. Now, I saw in our state newspaper, the Oklahoman today, that they have appealed that decision as expected. So we'll see what's going to happen next. One of the reasons why this lawsuit is really important is because it's one of the earliest suits to go to trial and to have a decision. There's an upcoming federal suit being um, tried in Ohio that uh, represents a consolidated 1,600 state, local, and tribal tribal governments that are doing a similar sort of um, attempt to hold the drug manufacturers accountable for their role in the crisis. I think this is really interesting and relevant to those of us who are working in this field for many reasons, but one of the reasons is thinking about how is this money going to be used. So that's not determined yet. I mean, it's not even determined how the final you know, what the final payment will be or to whom. But there's people who are looking to things like the tobacco uh, lawsuits in the past and trust that were created and programming that came out of that. I am obviously very interested in how we may be able to use some of this settlement money to expand integrated care so we can provide more comprehensive services to people who are experiencing opioid addiction or who are at risk of it because they're on a chronic opioid medication. I think that we could provide them much better services if we were able to fund expansion of integrated care. 
So this is just something I think we should keep an eye on. I wanted to update you on it because it's relevant here in my home state in Oklahoma. Um, but we'd love to hear from you kind of what's going on in your state and how you might be taking an active role in um, affecting change at this level. All right. And we're back. Thanks, Grace, for that uh, news item about the legal settlement related to the opioid crisis. And of course, there's so much in the news right now related to the settlement, particularly between the Sackler family. That's one of the leading uh, providers of opioid medication. So we'll, we'll be tracking this uh, pretty closely for you all. All right. Before we get to our main section, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. So here's the situation. You're a clinic trying to implement what should be a simple screening process for depression, and you're just not getting results. And you're trying to get your primary care providers working together with your mental health professionals, but the two sides just aren't jiving. Meanwhile, everyone agrees that the need is great and something needs to be done. Well, that's where CFHA's technical assistance services come in. We work with projects large and small from one-hour consultations to 1,000 hours and help you implement integrated care pathways that are evidence-based and grounded in practical know-how. Our stable of consultants are here to help. Interested? Then simply go to cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. Join the growing list of organizations who have benefited from the best guidance for integrated care around. That's cfha.net slash technical assistance or email us at info at cfha.net. All right, and we're back. And we are happy today to have, as we said, Andy Valeris, a physician who really has a, a unique perspective on um, healthcare. And, and the lens that he uses, he put forth in a couple of columns as part of the Family Systems and Health, the official journal of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. So when I came across these two columns that uh, Andy wrote, um, I thought, you know, this is something that we need to be sort of uh, talking about, talking about in the larger healthcare world, but particularly for those of us working in integrated care, where so many of the problems that we're trying to solve are really complex, interwoven problems, problems that interweave politics, the social structures of our nation, uh, the healthcare infrastructure, uh, the guilds, all of the uh, social complexity that our patients uh, bring to us, et cetera. So I'm really happy to have Andy today to talk to us about those. We will link to the president's columns in the show notes. So we invite you to read those and really dig deep into them. They're really nice reads because they're really just about a couple of pages long. And Andy does a good job of really explaining sort of what, what this approach towards complexity looks like. So, Andy, I want to start with just asking a really basic question. Um, in, in the first paragraph of your article on uh, titled Healthcare's Wicked Questions, a Complexity Approach, you do something really important and basic sounding, but important. And I think there's something behind there, and I want you to explain what's behind there. Here's what you say. I invite you to continue to explore the topic of complexity and embrace it within healthcare rather than shy away from it in order to influence the future state. So I, I get the sense there that there's a sense in which you are presupposing that we somehow are almost geared to shy away from complexity. 
Can you talk about that invitation and why it was important for you to actually invite your readers to engage complexity? Sure. So a lot of this, I think, extrapolates from what I see in the clinic and what I see with learners in regards to medical education. And I'll include myself in that bucket when early on being a, a new physician and recognizing that the skills that I had and what I was trained in, whether it be the pathology, the medical diagnosis and the treatment, worked really, really well for simple problems. And even when it got complicated, when the team was there, it was something I felt comfortable with. But recognizing when things got complex, when I wasn't certain of the best approach moving forward, or there wasn't agreement in the evidence of how to best approach the patient in front of me, I got lost. And that feeling of uncertainty is scary. And especially as a young learner, it was far easier to shy away from it than it was to approach it head on, both for the patient and I think myself sometimes. I think they're coming in saying, this is a very, very large problem for me. This is complex. It involves far more than you as a medical provider are expected to address. At the same time, they're in front of you asking for help. And that feeling of being in the wilderness and not really having a way out, I think was very scary. And I saw this in myself, but also seeing it in learners now that I train. And I would say also on a larger systems level, we tend to do the same thing. We use our data for what we have accessible, and we often apply it in a way to develop simple and sometimes complicated solutions that never really address the underlying etiology of the problem. So that's where that idea of until we acknowledge the complexity that's in front of us and stop trying to make it a simple or complicated problem, we won't have the right answers and won't have the right tools to approach it. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I picked up on in that invitation. There There's a sort of a version that we have to get over in order to see what's actually happening in our work in healthcare. Um, and so thank you for just doing that in your very first paragraph, because I think that's such a huge barrier. Now, there's something also a little bit Zen-like that I found about this next section that you wrote. Again, I want you to comment on this. Here's what you wrote. What if diagnosing and fixing the system is the wrong approach? Similar to the way we feel frustrated, helpless, and burnt out when we take a fixing approach to a patient who presents with multiple comorbidities, a history of trauma, social determinants of poor health, when we take a fixing approach to an equally complex system, we set ourselves up to fail. And so you're calling something out really important there that uh, maybe this, this approach we have to dealing with these issues is the wrong approach. And you're asking us to engage complexity uh, for what it is. Can you explain to us what you mean by that? What, you, what do you mean by what if diagnosing and fixing the system is the wrong approach? Sure. So I think there's two parts to that. The first part is healthcare is late to the game in adopting complexity science. Most other disciplines, whether it be economics, etiology, they have all recognized complexity science as the better tool to use for the problems that they're trying to solve. I considered why is it that healthcare is so resistant to approaching things from a different model or a different approach? I think in part, healthcare is still driven and, and led by medical model. It is our training and thinking about the leadership of systems or organizations, the training they receive to do the best diagnosis and treatment, 
are not necessarily the best skills to use in leadership positions or thinking about fixing the system as a whole. The, the quote that is burned into our brains at the Leadership Preventive Medicine Residency is every system is perfectly designed to get exactly the results it gets. So if that's the case and every system is already designed to get the results to get, there's nothing to fix. And this is the, the hard pill to swallow, I think, for people within healthcare within the system that the results we're getting now, even if you absolutely abhor them, they are the results the system is designed to get right now. So trying to fix a system that's not actually broken, it's actually perfectly designed to get these results, is an impossible task. So how do we think about it differently in recognizing that if it's not fixable, but we are asking for different results, how do we do that? And it's not using a simple or simplistic, complicated approach, it's complexity science that can yield different results. So before I, I kind of dovetail into that and have us dig deeper into this idea of complexity science and what it offers us from a perspective, I'm curious about our podcasters, because we had a, a sort of brief conversation offline about the article and about some of the challenging aspects of it. So, uh, Christine, what was your response when you read Andy's work what, what was sort of the internal and, and cognitive response you had to to the writing? What was what, what did you get from it? So there are a few things. The first one, when I got to the wicked questions part, I was like, ooh, it reminded me of all those topics you're not supposed to bring up at Thanksgiving dinner with all of your extended family, um, like politics and sex. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, he just he put those out there. I got it in my hand, which is terrible for an audio podcast. But so I'm showing you this article, but I'm like, oh, you just went there and listed all these questions that we, I mean, even at my house and my husband, we go around and around and around and it feels like we never get anywhere. I feel like that's the conversation that's being had over and over and over again. Um, so I, I love that you threw those in. I was like, whoa. Sorry, Christine, just to, just to clue the folks in. So what, what Andy does in the end of part of this article that we're referring to is ask, based on this complexity approach, a set of questions. And Christine, maybe you could read a couple of those off so the folks out there know. Yeah, for sure. Um, why do physicians receive incentive bonuses for quality metric achievement that the team members usually do not? Why do medications in the United States cost two to a thousand times more than in other countries? Why is it easier to write a prescription for a cholesterol-lowering medication than it is to provide a source for healthy food? Yeah. Lots of complex questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so then that, that, those questions come out of uh, understanding the interrelationship of things and being willing, really, to see the complexity in the relationships between things and being willing to see the system, as you said, Andy, as actually producing the results it's intended to produce. Um, and when you acknowledge that, I think what you're saying, Andy, is that these wicked questions kind of rise to the top and you're able to see them more clearly. Is that right? It is. And wicked questions are an approach to complexity. They're a tool in complexity science that help you understand the internal rules of the system. So answering the questions do not provide a definitive answer. It is purposely built to explore what are all the relationships that might be impacting the current status quo of that system. What is holding that system in place? So the examples that Christine listed, you could take any of those and really map them out and start to answer, why is it that physicians get all the incentive bonuses? Why is that not shared with the team, especially as we move towards value-based care? The team I work with does far more of the work in regards to those metrics than I do. 
So starting to explore the reimbursement system and who's incentivized can start to help us understand why is there such turnover in medical assistance in RNs right now? And starting to explore the wicked question can start to deliver the underlying issues and problems that we should be focusing on rather than just the, the symptoms. And to be clear, you're not proposing that asking these wicked questions will result in some awesomely pure, perfect solutions. And, and this is the paradox, and I think this is where I lose people when it comes to complexity science. There is none. There, there is no one definitive answer, and we've been trained in our medical training to always look for that one definitive answer. But when you're dealing with complexity, there may be hundreds of small little answers that move the system to emerge differently. So it's more about finding the leverage points within the system that could be influenced or open to influence might have the greatest impact in creating emergence, but it's not about the one thing that's just going to, to fix everything. Right. And just to drive this point home, with regard to integrated care, one of the most common sort of uh, thoughts or ideas that are thrown at me as CEO here at CFHA is, um, hey, if we can just fix the payment system, we'll, we'll have solved the integrated care issue and the quality of care issue in the healthcare industry. And, and I always shake my head and say, we could fix the payment system today and we'd still have most of the same problems that we have um, in the healthcare system. Okay. So that's an example of that. Um, so before we go on again, Bridget, uh, so you had a reaction to this article. What sort of struck you as you're reading this or what questions came up for you as you're, you're trying to digest what, what Andy's uh, talking to us about? Yeah, uh, so I thought it was fantastic, and I'm drinking the Kool-Aid of whatever what everyone's saying here. I often say that I talk out of two sides of my mouth because it's complex. I say that during all my trainings. There is no right answer. My, I guess, lens is through contextualism, so um, I'm all on board with, with context. The, the main question I had, I actually had to go back and read it three times, so I'm glad you'll be able to answer this, was, you know, you, you walk through the simple the simple problem that made sense. And then we walked through the complicated problem and then we got to complex. So from where I was sitting with the example that was used in the article was about uh, depression. I did not necessarily take that as being a complicated problem. I thought that was extremely complex. So in the article, I wasn't sure, you know, the example of depression. Um, I just wasn't sure if you were trying to say that that was complicated because as a behavioral health provider, treating depression all day, every day. I think it's anything, I, I can't think of it anything other than that it's complex. And sure. just to, and just Andy, just to provide context for the, for the uh, listeners. Uh, so this is related to the other article that Andy wrote that we'll link to the show notes called Caring is Complex and It Always Has Been. And Andy presents the uh, nomenclature around uh, complexity, um, talking about simple problems versus complicated problems versus complex problems. So Andy. Yeah, so maybe I could start with that, that, just that differentiation of simple, complicated, and complex. The idea that a simple problem has a agreed-upon solution, there's certainty in the result, and similar to following a recipe, that if you do it over and over and over again, you're going to get the same result because um, it's really about the parts and how they, they come together, and it's reproducible time and time again. So strep throat, the example I use in the article, that we have very good science on how to approach strep throat. We have very clear understanding of, of what, why we're doing it and what the best antibiotics are to treat it. So 
a simple problem with simple solutions. The complicated being when you have multiple different players needed in regards to come up with a solution. The example that's often used in the literature is sending a rocket to the moon, where you have multiple players, multiple algorithms, lots of science coming together in coordination to produce a, a certain result. There is still some ambiguity in how effective it's going to be uh, because of the interplay of all of these parts. But if you do it over and over and over again, you're likely to get that rocket to the moon at a greater predictability. Complex problems have no algorithm. There's no uh, formula that is going to help you in a complex problem. It is purely about relationships and understanding the context and thinking about the individual in front of you. Uh, the example they use is raising a child. So I, I heard from some of the podcasters, everyone has multiple children. Um, I have three children myself, and I can absolutely tell you the approaches I took with my first child, even though I tried to employ them with the second and third child, they don't work. They're different people. They are in themselves complex adaptive systems. So the science that I thought I had in all the books and literature to apply the best parenting techniques, they weren't that helpful at the end of the day. Each person was an individual. And I think, Bridget, what you're highlighting is my lack of ability to really pinpoint what I meant by why depression is currently in the complicated realm. So uh, my wife will tell you, I am not good with words. I think in pictures and a lot of complexity science is really pictorial in thinking about uh, a system and an agent. But what I'm trying to get across there is depression in itself is most likely a complex problem. Our approach to it currently is complicated. And meaning that we have taken depression, which the science over and over again is falling apart in regards to what it actually is what are the uh, best approaches to use for it. But rather than recognizing depression as a complex problem, we have come to a place where we have a air of certainty of what we should do with this. And I'll use some of the residents and what they think of treating depression. It is do a screener, get a high score, prescribe an SSRI, and pull in behavioral health. And what I'll challenge the, the other podcasters here is my sentiment, I've, and I've had back and forth with behavioralists in, in the past to this regard, is my impression is that the medical model is as alive in behavioral medicine as it is in medical. Yeah. And that idea of diagnose subject and object, that separation between you and the patient, and then applying a modality that will address and fix the problem. So that's what I was trying to get at, that you pull in these various team members and each of you are applying the best science that you have at the moment, and you combine them to try and create a complicated fix to what likely is a complex problem. So while depression in itself, I think is very complex, our approaches haven't used a complexity lens. They've just pulled team members together to try and create simple solutions that don't always work. And I know the point of the podcast isn't to get, you know, to preach to the choir, but uh, definitely preaching to the choir and that I couldn't possibly stress enough that you are absolutely right. I look around the behavioral health landscape. I do tons of trainings and we're always trying to make it a complicated problem. Uh, or even sometimes it's as bad as trying to make it a simple problem. Yeah. I was going to uh, say, I, that's what it sounds like. Sometimes it's just like a simple problem. Like if you just follow these steps, you'll get X results. Oh, yeah. It's I, I'm on board with you. We need more complexity in this algorithmic you know, screen, identify, and then target, lock and load and eradicate, like is so unbelievably, I actually think it's harmful. Not only is it not helpful, um, I think it can be harmful. 
So this is where it starts to hurt my brain is that our, our brains are developed that way. We are purposely built to look for patterns. We're purposely simplifying things to make sense of the world around us. So part of our desire for the simple fix, the simple solution is inherent in, I think, in our evolution. That is what's kept us alive. The issue is trying to apply those same heuristics and, and brain shortcuts to the problems we're facing now isn't going to work. You know, one of my thoughts when I was reading this was we can't keep streamlining for humans. We can't keep thinking it's a good idea to streamline things when we are working with complex human people. Yeah, I think as Andy noted with his kids, they're complex adaptive systems of, on their own. And, and that's right. interacting with another complex adaptive system in a context. And so, the irony, I feel like, is those children are growing up to be adults who are seeking care in the medical system. So at some point, it's like, wait, 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 if these, you know, parenting techniques don't work, of course an algorithm isn't going to fit the needs of everybody we're treating. Right. So that's what I mean by it. There's sort of a Zen-like quality to this, where the first step is to sit with the complexity, in a sense. Would you say that that's... That's a kind of at least a, a beginning space to be in, Andy, for, for healthcare professionals and those trying to do better? Absolutely. If we can get there, I think it takes uh, guidance and it takes coaching and it takes understanding of what that looks like to be able to, to sit with that in a reasonable space. After getting through that, I think it is incredibly freeing to relieve yourself of that notion that you are responsible for everything and the system included, rather that you are responsible to the system. And how do you engage with the system, not as something that's separate. And I think we do this with our patients too sometimes, that this idea of subject and object, both in the medical and behavioral world, is in some ways hindering our ability to see the interrelationships and the complexity within the system. Once we can sit with that and own, what am I bringing into the room? as part of this complex adaptive system that just formed between the dyad, only then can we start to understand what are the best approaches, not just for this patient, but for myself in that system to, to move forward. Absolutely. And, you know, it strikes me, Andy, that this is really a big reason why people come to integrated care. Um, they maybe can't articulate it as such. The question they may be articulating is, um, how do I integrate a behavioral health professional onto my team? Or they may be articulating something like, um, you know, how do we care for patients with depression in our population? But underlying that is a sense of dissatisfaction with the sort of status quo. Um, and, and I think what these, this series of, of articles here is helpful is saying, hey, let's not replace care as usual with another type of care as usual that just sort of uh, creates maybe a more complicated algorithm that you're going to follow, but still an algorithm, right? Um, let's respond to these to the complexities in, that we face in our systems and in our patient care with adaptive approaches uh, are responsive to what's actually happening in front of us. And I think that's the thing. It's like it's that's the frustration that folks come to. Uh, with this, you articulate this in the article, Caring is Complex, and it always has been. You say, the simple and complicated solutions in our healthcare system will likely continue to perpetuate this process, this process of making everything simplified. 
but is it what patients and providers are really seeking? So I want to ask you this question because I think it's germane to, again, what brings people to integrated care. As a provider yourself, what are you seeking that's not what you experience in day-to-day life as a physician? I think the, the number one thing is feeling like you made an impact, feeling that at the end of the day, you did some good for others, some good for your team, some good to, to change the system enough to the ideal state. And I think right now it is incredibly hard to find that value personally and, and within teams and within systems, and in part because I think we're using the wrong tools, the, the wrong science. Uh, we're leading to, to burnout. I think I quoted that idea of the moral collapse of what's happening right now in healthcare with physicians. It's that inability to find meaning at, at the end of the day of why did I just do that? Why did I see all those patients and have to go home and spend my pajama time documenting? What am I actually doing here? So when you lose that identity with purpose, um, it becomes very hard to come to work every day. And I think that's the thing that I'm looking for um, solutions for. And and for me, it's if we can start to think about our science that we employ a little bit differently, um, we might be able to come up with some, some solutions to these complex problems. Bridget, you mentioned before the uh, idea that you resonate with this approach in part because of the contextual uh, framework that you operate mm-hmm. from. So I just want to, for the behavioral health folks out there who maybe don't aren't connected to that world, I, I really resonate with you on that that idea. And Deepu, um, in the pre-discussion uh, to this, noted that as well. So make that connection there a little bit for some of our lessons around contextualism and why that kind of resonates with what Andy's talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're looking at contextualism and really getting into that science, there's a function to every behavior. And when you walk into the room as a clinician or healthcare provider, and knowing that whatever the patient's presenting with, that there actually is a function to that. Uh, Exactly like Andy said so eloquently that it's not about fixing anything. It's about kind of looking at, okay, what is the function of this? What is the function of that? Given this context, there are no behaviors that happen in a vacuum. And so when I walk into that room, it's such a different feel to it because my only job uh, is to connect with the patient, let them know I'm on their side, learn about their context. And then once I learn about their context, use the most up-to-date, whatever we have, you know, based on what we have, to start throwing out some different ideas for how they can maybe do something differently to get a different result because there's actually a function to their current behavior. A really easy way to look at it is if somebody's doing self-harming behavior, say a teenager, and they get very upset and then they cut, there's a function to that behavior. So the problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't the cutting. The problem is the response to uh, distressing internal experience. So what else can we try instead to get a similar result without necessarily it being an unhelpful behavior? Long story short, behaviors don't happen in vacuums and I'm not in charge of fixing anything. I'm there along for the ride to get to know them and kind of help steer kind of like a guide more so than a fixer. Speaking of complex systems, uh, when you're in a home with a dog and someone shows up with a package, it throws off your expectation that a podcast is going to be recorded perfectly with no background noises whatsoever. 
but that's, you know, I don't live in a vacuum either. Thank you, Bridget. That was a great connection there. Sorry, uh, listeners out there for my dog. Molly is her name, by the way, in case you're, you're interested. She's joining our podcast right now. <laughs> so we're coming here to the end. I really want to encourage folks to read this article, but in particular, I want to wrap up here with this notion of wicked questions because it's really the challenge that Andy throws out. Um, once you're in this space and you're able to see the systems for what they are and, and you're able to see yourself as an as a active player, in that system, it really brings up some really fascinating, and as Christine said, really challenging questions, right? So um, Andy, I, I want you to sort of give the folks out there a little bit of a taste of what wicked questions you have come across that have been personally challenging to you, because that that's the, the thing that was really interesting um, about what you wrote here towards the end of that article. It says, all this starts by recognizing and owning individually what part as agents we play within the system, right? And that can be really challenging because once we actually see the wicked questions, what they are, it might actually come back to us a little bit and kind of hit us, maybe in the pocketbook, maybe in our professional roles and identities, um, maybe in our what we came into this profession to do kind of a thing. So. Can you give some examples of wicked questions that you've asked that have been challenging to you? Absolutely. And I, I think you highlighted one of the hardest ones that I'm struggling with in that last part is, do I really want change? And I think that's the wicked question. I promote change. I teach change. And, and thinking about CFHA, we are actively trying to change the system um, at, at all times. But at the end of the day, what does it mean for change for me? And it goes back to that idea of being an agent within the system and the adage that everyone wants change, but no one themselves really wants to change. So they want change, but they don't want to change themselves. So if I ask myself that question, do I really want change? Inherently, the answer is yes. Practically, thinking about what that means for me as a physician, part of what change would look like in an ideal state and ideal system, patient care that we are moving towards is I have less power. And that is a hard thing for someone in in power to give up. That is the, the first thing I think as a healthcare system, we all have to acknowledge is who has the power right now? And is that what's keeping the current status quo? And if we're truly looking for change, are we willing to have those hard conversations to say, I'm going to give up some of my power for the greater good of the patient, for the greater good of the healthcare system, and that's a hard conversation to have. Power can equate to money, but not even necessarily that equation. It could just be status. It could be decision-making. There, there's so many facets to it. But I think that's the wicked question we have to ask right now is who has the power in healthcare? And maybe they control some of the levers and internal rules of the system. And is that grip on those levers so tight and unwilling to let go? That is that what's keeping us static rather than moving um, towards a direction that we're looking for? Thank you so much, Andy. We really appreciate it. Um, again, there's much more here that can be learned, particularly if you're interested in looking at the science behind this. So there, as Andy said, uh, we've had a you know, very brief conversation glossing over folks who've done a lot of deep thinking about um, how to look at systems and um, how to address these complex problems from a more functional to use Bridget's terminology, from a more functional approach. So 
Uh, we'll Again, we'll link to these in the show notes. Before we go, however, as usual, we have a special segment today, and I want to intro this special segment in particular uh, with, uh, with the preface of a, of a uh, larger conversation around this. This is an interview that I did with the managing partners of a new company, a startup called Evolved MD, and it's a group of folks in Arizona that are looking to integrate consulting psychiatric support and uh, brief intervention models in clinics in Arizona. Uh, they've been around for a couple of years, and they'll tell you stor their story here in brief in the interview. Uh, but before that, I wanted to just sort of highlight um, uh, one of the issues that they brought up and they wanted to, to sort of champion here, which is uh, sort of a, a common uh, issue in our circles in integrated care. They're, they've done very well for themselves and have been able to engage payers in uh, supporting their work in Arizona and we talk about that in the, in the interview. But um, they raise the concern that there is one uh, national insurer that they've had trouble with, um, and they'll, they talk about it here. The insurer has actually been putting out uh, advertisement. I don't know if you guys have seen these commercials by Cigna uh, with, I think it's uh, Serena Williams and others. Have you guys seen those commercials? So anyway, it's a pretty pretty nice ad campaign that uh, Cigna has put out. Uh, I really uh, like the spots. Uh, it basically promotes destigmatization of mental health and the importance of mental health with physical health care. Um, you know, having these stars put it out there is a great way to promote you know the idea behind integrated care at least. Unfortunately, they've also this company has also not been very supportive on the payment side of them. So that's part of the conversation that we had uh, tacked on to the end of the conversation. So I want you to uh, listen in on that piece of the conversation, hear what they have to say. And if you have as listeners, any comments, uh, questions um, or, or thoughts about that and what's going on in your area with regard to payers and how they're interacting with uh, your integrated care uh, efforts. We'd love to hear it here at our podcast. You can reach us at info at cfha.net. That's info at cfha.net with any responses, etc. Um, and of course, we'd be happy to have the folks at Cigna on to our podcast as well to talk about their campaign and also to talk about you know what their efforts are with regard to payment um, for these sorts of issues. So without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with the managing partners of this new startup, Evolved MD. Can you each just introduce yourselves? Steve Bilgen, uh, one of the managing partners at Evolved MD, uh, along with Eric Osland. We started in 2016 now, just over three years ago, with an idea to try to improve the identification and treatment of behavioral health in the primary care setting and uh, kind of quickly adopted the psychiatric collaborative care model out of the University of Washington. Great. All right, Eric? Eric Osland here, based out of Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, managing partner for Evolved MD. First of all, I want to thank you guys for uh, joining me here for this interview. It's really exciting to hear about what you guys are doing. Our listeners are, are really well aware of the collaborative care model. And so, you know, they, they have the background as to what you guys are doing. But what our listeners are especially going to be interested in is the fact that you guys are a private company doing this and that you guys have figured out a way to really market this uh, effectively. And they also probably want to hear and we'll ask some questions 
around uh, some of the pain points that, that you have. So to start, uh, I'd like to uh, our listeners to get a thumbnail sketch of what services your company offers. Again, understanding that our listeners uh, understand the the basics of the model behind it, and a little bit about who your clients are and how this all got started. Eric, why don't you start by giving a little bit of that part? Yeah, and uh, and obviously, Natalie, thank you for having us. Uh, we're excited to be uh, new members of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Our story is is obviously a bit unique based upon the type of organization we are and, and how we ultimately got here. I, I think that's always a, a good place for us to start. Steve and I uh, do not have a background in behavioral health. Uh, we do have uh, extensive backgrounds in healthcare and uh, healthcare device space, but uh, what ultimately led us here was um, passion uh, to serve a subset of the healthcare population that we felt was was wildly underserved. And when we saw an opportunity to do that, um, based upon personal experiences that we had within the space, and um, ultimately it all started uh, with a situation that I encountered with my own family. Uh, my father uh, was chronically ill. Uh, suffered from a number of um, of uh, chronic disease states, uh, including dementia. And as a family, we uh, were working to manage my father's care alongside my mother, who was the primary caregiver. Uh, and at the time, uh, he was on 17 medications. And as uh, I think a lot of your listeners will understand, managing that type of patient with that number of medications, not only is it is it difficult just from a, a logistical perspective and from an emotional perspective, but for my parents, it was a significant challenge economically as well. And so um, at that time, I had a pharmacist, a PharmD that worked for me, and we did a comprehensive workup on my father. And we basically ran an uh, informal medication management program with my father. Uh, we saw great results. And uh, based upon that um, engagement, we got uh, very passionate about uh, managing these types of patients and focusing on their medication, their dosing, their optimization. And we went to the Arizona State Physicians Association and said, hey, we, we want to run a pilot where we focus on chronically ill patients, uh, where we will insert a pharmacist into the care setting uh, to do nothing more than manage the medications for your chronically ill patients. And uh, from there, we ran a clinical pilot site in a, a primary care facility in uh, the West Valley of Phoenix, uh, where we managed about 400 patients through this embedded pharmacy program. And from that experience, um, we pulled a number of a number of valuable lessons. Uh, first and foremost, there's a ton of clinical utility in focusing on medications. Uh, but through that process, uh, we actually screened all of our patients for depression using a PHQ-9. And what we found was that 80% of the patients we screened with these chronic disease sets suffered from depression. And of the 400 patients we managed in this period of time, none of them, as in zero, had ever had a behavioral health resource. And so at that time, we looked at um, the model that was existing, and we said, there's an opportunity here to insert a uh, clinical uh, program that can serve these patients that are chronically ill that also suffer from depression. Um, at that time, I engaged Steve, who I had actually worked for in a private life, and I said, hey, Steve, we're going to develop this new model where we're going to focus on behavioral health integration. Uh, come and join the team and, and help us bring it to market. And so that was in uh, late 2016. Steve joined the team uh, and really was the driving force behind selecting our clinical model, uh, which is psychiatric collaborative care. And uh, he was integral in obviously uh, uh, bringing our first site on board here in Phoenix. Uh, we ran that pilot site for a year, focused primarily on Medicare population. Uh, we worked out the kinks 
both clinically and economically. And then last year we um, we opened up an additional 13 sites. And so how did we get here? I think we, as uh, as, as two entrepreneurs uh, who had personal experience in this space, identified that there was an opportunity to improve a particular category of healthcare, specifically behavioral health integration. And we threw ourselves into it. And, and here we find ourselves today uh, in Arizona with uh, you know 13 sites uh, spread across Metro Phoenix uh, and Northern Arizona. That's fantastic. Now, Steve, you're part of this story as well. Um, what sort of drew your interest, other than the fact you had a pre-existing relationship with Eric, to say, hey, this makes a lot of sense, and uh, connecting the dots there, what gave you the confidence uh, that the collaborative care model was the approach that, that would best serve uh, the needs of your, your sort of business model? Well, I think a uh, couple, couple points on that to address is I was going through some challenges of my own related with burnout and depression, and it's kind of getting past those those personal challenges and really my first probably actual experiences with receiving care in, in our healthcare system related to behavioral health. And shortly thereafter, when Eric brought up the idea to me and I kind of looked at it from a business standpoint of, you know, how many people are we talking about that challenge with some type of behavioral health disorder? What is the kind of existing um, businesses, if you will, that are out there trying to service that? Is it working? Is it not? Uh, and are there better ways to do it? And what might those be? I think from a high-level sort of analytical approach, looked at things around diagnosis rates and underdiagnosis rates and the amount of attention and maybe kind of a, a gut check that kind of said, hey, things are maybe building towards this being an approach of where integration especially is being looked at to potentially be the future of, of healthcare and as a better way to utilize resources and provide good clinical outcomes. And then uh, really kind of looked at the the data. And I think we were, you know, we, we certainly weren't aware of what was going on uh, within CMS or maybe some other states around APT codes coming and whatnot. But we kind of figured, well, you know, here's a clinical model that has really strong research uh, and actually strong research for a, quite a long time. And when you've got folks like Cochrane, you know, evaluating things across the globe, coming out with statements saying it's, you know, much better than quote unquote usual care and things coming around where you know, you're affecting physical chronic conditions and making improvements there by having behavioral interventions. It just seemed like we'd be able to figure it out. <laughs> um, and then uh, things kind of changed uh, along with Medicare kind of announced that they were going to be releasing codes for it. It was very circumstantial, I think, um, for us. But we were a little just sort of the typical entrepreneur approach of looking at a problem, seeing that there were solutions out there that weren't being um, you know, maybe used and then kind of saying, hey, we'll work our way through this and kind of roll the sleeves up and figure it out. And I want to get back to that sort of how you approached it as entrepreneurs, because I think that's uh, interesting on its own. But before we get to that, let me ask you then the sort of uh, uh, big question of how you guys have figured out a way to make this financially sustainable, particularly from a private company standpoint. So as you all know, most of the uh, projects thus far in the United States uh, have some combination of grant funding, whether state or federal uh, subsidies, or just are barely breaking even, if that, in their organizations. And you guys have been able to make this from a private company standpoint. So um, without getting too far into the weeds, What's the sort of the, the secret to your success thus far? I'll jump in and I'll start. You know, I think a lot of it, to Steve's point, is circumstantial. Uh, we just happen to be in one of eight states that uh, has made a paradigm shift 
as it relates to coverage for behavioral and physical health. Um, the state of Arizona in January of 2018 set forth to change their managed care organization and the way that patients were treated behavioral health. Uh, that opened uh, up the opportunity to establish a fee-for-service arrangement for the Medicaid population. And that really is the driving force. And I think that's what I would tell any of your listeners uh, in different marketplaces is what's the differentiating factor between Arizona and, and many other states as it relates to the economic viability of COCM. And it all revolves around coverage uh, within the Medicaid population. So in Arizona, we have uh, full coverage across all managed care organizations. So the payer landscape is very, very positive. You know, beyond that, I think I think a lot of this lends towards Steve and I's business backgrounds. Um, we spent an enormous amount of time not only modeling the, the clinical aspects of this program, but modeling the economic pieces is how do we look at clinicians? How do we hire them? How do we retain them? How do we develop them personally and professionally? How do we look at caseload? Because caseload is, is an important metric, both from a clinical and an economic perspective. Um, and I think that it's taken some time and, and we certainly had some runway to, to look at these issues and figure out the best way to address them. And candidly, we're still working, we're still trying to get better every single day. But um, I think it's a combination of, of our background in business and the fact that we're in a state that has put us in as good of a position as we can hope for to be viable from a fee-for-service perspective on this, on this program. So a couple of dovetail questions there for either of you. So you're currently in a fee-for-service environment. You're making it work because the environment is a healthy environment from a payer standpoint. Um, are there conversations uh, amongst your payers, and are you all preparing for a transition from fee-for-service to value-based or other sort of uh, whole care payment strategies? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, I know every market's a little bit different with the dynamic. Um, in Arizona, fee-for-service is still pretty, pretty prevalent. Um, not sure how that is going to continue to be in the future. So we are definitely trying to get our arms around being able to survive here in our current business. Um, outside, without that, we're also thinking more about, you know, if we expand into other places, how can we make an, a, make an economic relationship work where it may be full capitation, for example. Um, we actually just were meeting with the, one of the ACOs here earlier this morning about this whole topic. And I think for us as a business, um, there's maybe three types of ways that that we can generate income for ourselves. If that's, you know, common, it's either one or all three of them in concert, whether it's fee-for-service per member per month type of uh, capitation arrangements or, um, you know, whether it's shared savings or things on the quality front. And so right now we have a real good understanding and experience with fee-for-service, and we're just sort of getting our feet wet a little bit on the other types of, of arrangements, mainly around quality, um, but also thinking more about you know, if we were to sort of go into that full capitation type of an environment, um, how can we not just survive, but also thrive in that, along with our customers, too, and our patients. Right. Excellent. And remind me again, how many sites you guys are in currently and how many employees you have? We provide services at 12 sites right now throughout Arizona, um, primarily in the Phoenix market, but we also have locations in Sedona and Flagstaff. Uh, we're just in the north here, a little bit more rural, um, and we have about 15 full-time equivalent uh, employees. Excellent. So it's it's uh, not a super tiny 
organization. Do you have do you have uh, outcomes several years in, uh, whether they be patient outcomes, process outcomes, um, or even just client? When you think about client, thinking about the sites that you're serving, client satisfaction outcomes. What what has been the result of your efforts in these first few years? If you have any sort of numerical or other sort of data on that. You know, I'll, I'll start here, and then I'll hand it off to Steve for, uh, for some additional detail. But, you know, at a, at a high level, I think one of the areas that we're challenged and we're trying to develop alignments is, is in the payer landscape so we can better understand the impact of total cost of care. And, and that is coming, uh, whether it's from a payer or from an ACO. Um, I, I would say just from a general perspective, looking at um, practices that provide standard care in, in the primary care space, their experience prior and post, I think that the biggest impact that we can report is, and going back and talking to these practices about how they practice previously and how they practice now. And what I think you'll hear unanimously is we don't know how we provided care before this was an option, right? They were, they were managing behavioral health at a very topical level. They were seeing the same patients over and over for mesomantic symptoms with really limited resources on where to send those patients. Um, and I think when you fast forward to current state, you know, now we have embedded behavioral health specialists on site that can not only assess patients but provide them interventions. Uh, we have a, a pretty robust care coordination team. So the patients that are higher acuity or need more advanced services, we can not only identify where we need to send them, but we can actually provide them with a warm handoff. And so not only is it impacted these practices in the way that they're able to deliver uh, clinical care, but it's actually driven efficiencies because now we can manage these uh, patients with behavioral health needs in a much more specific manner and make sure that we don't just give them a referral. We make sure that they, they get there at least at a higher probability rate. Uh, beyond that, I mean, Steve can talk to some of the metrics that we're beginning to chase down here currently into the future. Yeah, and uh, following up on, on Eric's point, a lot of the feedback we have is, is qualitative in nature from, from the physicians that we're embedded with, um, also with patients, um, we track a number of, of mainly financial and, I guess you could say, activity metrics in terms of appointments that are scheduled and followed through and completed and things like that. Um, we're starting to have some discussions around diagnosis rate, changes, um, specific around behavioral health, ICD-10s, total cost of care, pieces that are a little bit more claims-based. Uh, we've been probably a little bit challenged with not being big enough, I guess, uh, to, to have types of those discussions with some payers and, and maybe not um, have as long of a data set of claims data where we can, you know, have some pretty definitive, um, you know, kind of call it before and after types of discussions. But we're basically at that point now where we've been on site, um, you know, kind of post pilot with kind of those 12 sites for over 12 months now. So, you know, we're kind of going back to some of these folks and saying, hey, now that we've got, call it some uh, bigger sample size on the after effects, um, can you help us understand if we're coming close to some of the things that you read about in the research? Are we working to make some improvements? Um, things that might be a little bit more clinical in their um, in their quantitative impact. I'll jump in real quick on one component, and I, I think you know obviously I think what a lot of your listeners are interested in is the economic aspect of, of how we operate, and I think one of the metrics that we can very clearly report from an individual site perspective is that each of our sites is generating profitable revenue from the program, which means that the costs associated with implementing and deploying the program, the revenue from fee-for-service is exceeding that. So I think from an economic perspective, we, we're pretty bullish on the viability of this program. And so I think that's another metric that we can certainly report. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And that's what I think is exciting to hear. Our listeners uh, will be excited to hear. And I, I think one of the things that uh, is gonna, we're going to be seeing in the next five to 10 years are more entrepreneurs like you guys entering the space and, and uh, bringing their business background to bear on the transformed healthcare landscape um, as it is being transformed on an ongoing basis. So my last question to you is, let's say a, a couple of, of uh, new entrepreneurs um, come to you for advice and they're trying to enter into uh, this particular space, maybe not this exact space, but something in the realm of, of integrating healthcare. Um, f- what, what are the top maybe one or two things that you would uh, advise entrepreneurs in this space to pay attention to as they either develop their concepts or pilot their programs or implement some of their ideas? What are some of the things that you would um, counsel? Eric, starting with you and then followed by Steve. Uh, gosh, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. We, we had a discussion about this last week, and I think that at the core of it, uh, being an entrepreneur – uh, you know, the dollars and cents are obviously pivotal to, to the longevity of the company, but it can't be the driving force. I think when you look at uh, whether it's developing a program or an organization, there has to be an underlying passion that is the base. And you look at what Steve and I have gone through, and in, in fact, our entire team over the last two or three years, um, there's been a lot of challenges. And I think there's there's been plenty of opportunities to look at this and say, you know, and I'm going to wash my hands of this and I'm going to go forth and do, do something else, spend my time somewhere else. Uh, and so having that underlying passion about making change is, is really, I would say, that the most important because uh, any entrepreneur knows that you're just going to face challenges that you have to overcome. And without that, that passion, it, it becomes difficult. Beyond that, I think it's just developing a network of, of peers uh, and, and certainly on my end, having a, a great business partner that is able to give you a different perspective on things has been key. So you know, I, I think a big part of it is passion, and then it's about developing a network of peers that you can go to to address questions or challenges that you face. And then certainly if you have a business partner, you know, having one that uh, is able to give you honest feedback in a compassionate way is, is certainly important. Steve? I definitely agree with 100% with everything. Uh, Eric said especially uh, this great business partner. But um, I think, you know, maybe you touched on uh, in your question about a concept, you know, as entrepreneurs might be looking at at, a, at maybe building something or starting something and kind of working through that. You know, I think my piece of advice around that would be making sure that they're following the, the data or the evidence, um, kind of the science around whatever they are doing so that, I mean, especially in healthcare, um, you know, ultimately I think if something's not going to be delivering a clinical impact um, that is significantly better than what's already out there, or at least measurably better, then that concept just really ultimately is not going to be sustainable. So I do think that having a good understanding of evidence is going to be really, really key. And I think in addition to that, because there are a ton of opportunities out there for folks that find something that they're passionate about or that they're interested in, is there's evidence and then is there, you know, how do you then differentiate yourself as a company? So maybe differentiate yourself in your product offering or your service offering to a customer how do you differentiate yourself in terms of managing staff and, and recruiting employees where they have a different experience working for you than they would if they worked somewhere else? And I think those are probably, I would say, two key things is just understanding how you're going to be different. If you are going to go down that path of kind of being that entrepreneur, uh, it's really hard to compete with, you know, or even just, 
get on somebody's radar because you're going to be kind of small. You're not the big boy in town. You don't have much of a brand. So you've got to be different when you market yourself. You've got to be unique. And you also have to have some real strong service or data behind you and to make sure that what you're doing has some teeth to it, has some longevity to it. And especially in healthcare, you're going to make a clinical difference. Everything else after that, you know, the dollars and cents kind of, you know, are what they are. Um, but they typically they'll fall. I think if you're going to be doing a really good job um, in terms of delivering care and improving care, ultimately you'll find a way um, and people will find a way to incentivize you to continue to do that. Excellent. Uh, one last question, this whole Cigna thing. Um, so Eric, you mentioned that you got that, that you got a response from Cigna, but you didn't mention what kind of response it was. What what did they say? Oh, so I, I, and I'm not sure if the email chain came through, but it, it involved it, the full chain from the, the national medical director for Cigna. And you know, long story short is, you know, Cigna has been talking both internally and voicing their position since 2016 around the value of an integrated model for behavioral health. Um, if you look at the marketplace, a massive shift occurred in January of 2018, where most, if not all, of the national payers came online with a fee-for-service arrangement. Cigna was the one outlier. When we identified them as an outlier, we began to reach out and we, we spoke with Dr. Nemechek, who is the National Medical Director for Behavioral Health. Um, we were told at that time that they were working through some logistical issues with their system and that they hope to have the codes activated by January of 2019. Uh, January 2019 came and went with no coverage. Uh, we continued to engage them. And we find ourselves today in a very similar position that we were in October of, of 18, which is Cigna still doesn't cover this service line. And I think what we find most problematic about that position is not only do they not cover it, but they are actively messaging right. the marketplace that integration is here. And so we applaud them for that. But the challenge yeah. is, is we are seeing an uptick and Cigna patients coming to our practices talking about the disease states with no relevant arrangement to actually pay for the services. And so I, I think for us, this is, you know, we're poking a bear, candidly, that's way too big for us to poke right now, yes. but I think it speaks to our passion on this. Mm -hmm. um, we're frustrated. They, they are actively marketing a campaign to the U.S. patient population mm -hmm. where the message doesn't match the coverage policy. And yeah. so... You know, you and I spoke briefly about advocacy and, and uh, CFHA's role in that. And to me, this is an opportunity where we have really one outlier on the national payer landscape that is not covering it, and they are giving lip service to it. And I think what we found by simply sending a note out to the listserv is that the national medical <laughs> director got that email within two hours. So there is power in the membership, and, you know, certainly we would be – uh, very bullish about leveraging that power to uh, to encourage Cigna to act quickly. Yeah, well, you said you said it, um, and I'm glad. I'm not surprised that it got around that quickly because uh, circles are not that big. So uh, keep me up to date on what what kind of conversations you all have with them, um, and uh, please, if there's a way we can uh, help. Uh, let us know. Um, sometimes it's just about networking to the right people, right? That's really what it ends up being. Who knows who and who can get somebody's ear to say, hey, what's going on with this? And that's funny when you sent that because I, I've seen those commercials like many of us have. 
Um, and it's, you know, it bothers me too. Cause I know on the back end, I'm like, uh, this doesn't match the reality on the back end for providers or for patients. So. Yeah. Tell you on that, on that front, um, just candidly, they're not going to make this change unless one of two things happens. Number one, the economics on their end line up mm-hmm. somehow to make logistical changes that candidly they've already done for their Medicare Advantage plans or number two, they, they get some public pressure, right? And in our eyes, they deserve the public pressure because they put themselves out on a limb by promoting an integrated model that they don't actually cover. And so I think if we hit the right buttons, we can, we can get some change to happen pretty quickly. Candidly, Cigna is going to be forced to do this, at least in the state of Illinois, coming January of this year, because Illinois just passed definitive legislation around COCM and coverage. So, you know, hopefully that's the stopgap, but mm-hmm. we just, we don't want to wait. We want this to happen quickly because right. it's, it's impacting practices financially and it's, and most importantly, it's impacting patients because their access to care is being limited. Eric, Steve from Evolved MD, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Natalia. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Natalia. Thanks, guys. Have a great rest of your day. All right. And we're back. Uh, our thanks to Steve and Eric, the uh, managing partners and entrepreneurs behind Evolved MD. As usual, um, and I think very, very appropriate today, uh, Deepu uh, offers us a sort of a parting series of thoughts or a parting blessing. So he couldn't be here today. I'm here. Oh, he's there. <laughs> uh, there's no way I could have predicted that one. That's a wow. All right. So here is our uh, parting thought for the day. May we be blessed with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May we be blessed with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May we be blessed with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, war, immigration, so that we may reach out our hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may we be blessed with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. Thank you. Thanks to Deepu, as always, and thanks to you, our listeners. Thanks to our special guest, Andy. Thanks to Christine for joining our team today. This is Neftali Serrano for the Integrated Care Podcast. We look forward to seeing you and hearing from you again in Denver, Colorado in a month. Thanks again.